Well, I have kind of a little bit of a show and tell for you this morning with some pictures behind me that you can kind of take a look at. Um, I got to have a really, really special experience at the beginning of this month. Um, I traveled down to Cuba to visit with a church planting movement that has been taking place for a number of years throughout the island of Cuba that is a combination of both brand new church plants as well as older established churches that are revitalizing as they taste and see and experience the gospel uh, in a fresh way. The name of this church planting movement is called Los Pinos Nuevos, which in English means the new pines, the new pines as in the trees. And that actually, that statement is a really, really uh, well-known statement within Cuba because it comes from a really famous poem uh, from within that country. And so it really connects with that culture. Um, I want to tell you just in my brief three and a half days there that I got to see um, a couple things. First, I got to see the beauty um, of Cuba. It is just amazing sunsets. Um, the, some of the cityscapes are just spectacular to, to take in, just the bright colors, um, both of the landscape, but also of the cars. Just all the cars are painted in these bright Caribbean colors. Um, speaking of cars, if you didn't know, it, the, Cuba is just a sea of these classic cars from the 1950s. Some are in great shape, some are just really beaten up, but um, you literally have this experience like you've gone back in time as you arrive there um, in Cuba. There's a beautiful old Capitol building as well, just beautiful things. But at the same time, Cuba is also very much a land that is gripped by poverty. And I mean that both in the physical financial sense as well as in the spiritual sense. Um, this country is daily affected by the reality of a revolution that swept through in 1959. And as most of you know, if you know a little bit of your history, that a communist government take, took over in 1959. And, and really the economy since that point um, has never recovered. And so all the people in that community, Christian or not, are very much affected by those realities on a daily basis. Um, again, when you go there, you literally feel like you've gone back to 1959 because many of the aspects of that culture and of the cities there have not changed literally since that point in time. Um, spiritually speaking, Cuba reports to be about 5% Christian. And there's also very much a story there. Um, in 1959, when the government changed, at that point, Cuba was officially declared to be an atheistic country that that was the official religion or non-religion um, of the country. That did change in a way, though. In the 1990s, the Pope came to visit Cuba, and through a dialogue with Fidel Castro, they actually changed from being officially an atheist nation to being officially a secular nation. And what that did is it actually began to open up the doors to allow the believers that were there in the country to sort of come out from underground to begin to experience a little bit more of a freedom to be able to live out the gospel and even share it. And so that's very much the, the situation today. Um, it was profoundly impacting for me to get to go and spend just a couple days with believers, though, that are in this country that are on mission for the gospel. Um, I got to meet about 10 or 15 different church planting couples, husbands and wives, that are leading either existing churches that are revitalizing, again, or brand new church plants in a variety of different cities. And they had come together for kind of a training um, that weekend and also just for us to be able to, to meet with them. So I just want to show you a couple of the pictures. Um, the first picture that you're going to see is Pastor David and his wife, Elizabeth. And they are new to a small um, traditional church. It's kind of in a rural area well outside of Havana. And they were telling us stories. They basically said when they, um, when they came to this established church, what they found very quickly is that the church body 
Uh, and again, the average church in Cuba is maybe 20, 30 people. Um, a mega church in Cuba is 70, 80 people. Um, but in their church, what they found was the folks that were already there really um, were unwilling to do evangelism, were really unwilling to share the gospel. And so they said, okay, we're going to go out and we're going to find people. And what they did was they actually started a soccer team. Um, they started a city soccer team and they recruited 28 new people into that team. And those people now actually make up this brand new church plant um, in that particular city that they're in. They named the, the soccer team the Evangelists. And so they're just, they're impacting the city now through this soccer team. Um, the next picture here is going to be a pastor named Yalexis, who's in a, a smaller city called Pinar del Rio. And there, um, he has gone through just an incredible amount of challenges. Um, the weekend while we were there, Yalexis was actually on crutches um, throughout the weekend because uh, of a, an ongoing foot infection that he just has not been able to get healing from. One of the challenges they have is a lack of access to medication. So we actually brought as much medication as we could bring to be able to help him specifically with his own health. His wife also struggles deeply with lupus. They've been ministering in a church plant for about five years in that city, and they tell a story of after the first three years, basically all of their leaders that they had raised up left, and they had to start from scratch and start over. Uh, but they remained faithful even in that difficult challenge, and they too have now raised up a group, a new house church of about 28 people, and he says the vast majority of them don't yet know the Lord, but they're interested, and they're coming, and they're listening, and they're hearing the gospel, and so even through these challenges, they have seen God working. Um, third picture here is a pastor whose name is Fide. Um, Fide is a church planter in training, kind of like I have been the last several years up until now, and he's in a city called Camagüey. He's one of several in that team there in that city. Um, his wife died suddenly out of nowhere just this last year, and he's had to walk through that even as he is seeking to be a part of the mission of the gospel in this city. Um, so there's a little boy who's seven or eight years old who was there that week as well, and I hadn't quite figured out, you know, who he went with, and I discovered that that was his dad, and so the two of them were very much together as this is our team, our family of two, and so they held a, a birthday party for the seven-year-old little boy while we were there, and um, just to watch his dad just be just a wash of tears as he's dealing with the realities of it's a broken world, difficult things happen, he's lost his wife, and yet he wants to dedicate every hour of his day in life to be a part of the mission. Um, fourth picture here is a pastor named Hernan. And Hernan has ministered in a city named Trinidad. Not the country of Trinidad that's across the water, but there's an actual city in Cuba called Trinidad. He's been there eight years, and he started with 15 people. Um, this is one of the really encouraging stories. He now has several hundred people that are involved in 26 different little house churches. So you can imagine, again, a house... 10, maybe 20 people, that is the church in each house that are throughout this city. And uh, he's now training 14 new pastors to be able to continue to work and lead these different church plants just in his city. Um, the fifth and final picture is a picture of Pastor Alieski and his wife, Dora. And they are the city leaders of all of the kind of church plants that are in the city of Camagüey. They planted two churches in the city 18 months ago. Those two daughter churches have already planted two more daughter churches, making he and his church grandparents already in a year and a half, and they're continuing to see that same movement of church plants, house churches that plant and plant and plant and continue to grow. 
I share with you all those pictures. I mean, how do you summarize, you know, multiple days of seeing people and hearing stories and seeing the sights? I mean, it was, it was overwhelming. It was incredible. I just wanted to give you a taste of what that looked and, and felt like, and I want to dovetail that into the Word of God, because what we're going to see here this morning is that, that their mission is our mission. Okay, our mission is their mission, and that is because ultimately what we are called to do is God's mission. We have been called into what He is doing. And I think we're going to see the story in Cuba, the story here in Palm Bay and Melbourne converge here on the pages of Acts chapter 11 in a way that I think is super crucial for us to understand who are we and what are we as believers and as New City Church ultimately supposed to be about. So I want to give us four applications this morning as we jump into the passage now. First application you're going to see is this, God's mission. God's mission is to take the gospel message to every city, every city. Look with me again at verses 19 and 20 to open this passage. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, when on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. God's mission is to the whole world. If we went back to the beginning of Acts, we would see in Acts chapter 2 that Jesus himself ascends, goes back to heaven, but he gives us a promise. He says, the Holy Spirit will come and will empower you to continue in working out my mission. So here we are now in Acts chapter 11, and the Holy Spirit has come, but with it has come persecution, hardship. That is people who are being attacked and literally killed because they named Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. When this persecution really begins, it, it literally pushes the believers who are mostly in the city of Jerusalem at this point, it pushes them all over the place, and they begin to scatter basically all over the ancient Near East, what is now the Middle East and sort of South Central uh, Asia and Europe. They go everywhere, and that's what this passage is describing. But here's the key ingredient. It says, at first, these Christians, who are all Jews, only talked to other Jews about the gospel. And that makes a little bit of sense because they themselves were Jews, but they did not yet understand the big picture of God's mission and what God is teaching. And Acts chapter 11 is actually this incredible, pivotal moment where the people of God finally understand the mission of God and they move outside of their circle. The scripture says there were some. I love that. We don't know their names. We don't know who they were. But thank God for the some. We want to be the some. We want to continue to be a part of this group called the some who spoke to the Gentiles also, says the scripture. And just so we're clear, Gentile means anyone who's not a Jew. Pretty much everybody here, right? So if you're not a Jew, you are a Gentile. So thank God that the, the gospel message has come to us. Here is where it really begins. And this second generation of Christians is really the first generation, to fully get it and to fully act out on what Jesus had been saying all along, but now suddenly they are beginning to, to take part in it, that the mission of God is for salvation for the whole world. Hey, the good news, it's not just for me. The good news is not just for you. It's not even just for us. 
So if you're a believer this morning, you're saved by grace. The gospel is not something that we just sort of stick in our pocket. It goes out. Listen to Psalm 96, a powerful passage that talks about what we are supposed to do. Notice it's in the Old Testament, so God's message is clear. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. Now, let's be clear here. This mission is God's mission, and God's mission is therefore our mission. So it's important to understand the order, the size, and the priority here. It is bigger than me. God's mission is bigger than New City Church. God's mission is certainly bigger than the United States of America. God's mission is global. Okay, who is it for? Who is it that God has called to be a part of that mission? All of the church. And when I say church, I don't mean just New City. I don't even mean just Palm Bay or the state of Florida. I mean the big C, the church, the body of Christ all over the world. And where then do we go? Everywhere. The gospel is supposed to go everywhere. Okay, well, where does it start? Where does it start for me? Wherever God has placed you. So it starts right here in this cafeteria, in this city but it goes to the farthest ends of the earth, and we get to be a part of that. But we join what God is already doing, right? It is God's mission, and we come and be a part of us, of of what he is doing. He doesn't need me, right? He doesn't need us, but yet he calls us into it. He invites us into it and empowers us to be a part of what he is already doing. God's mission, we're a part of it. Let me just make one more quick observation here on these two verses. It is not a throwaway point that God's movement begins with persecution. See, because God uses persecution, God uses hardship for our good and for his glory. That's a really, really important thing for us to catch because I think as believers, as people, it's a very natural thing to, as soon as we see bad things happen, when we see awful things happen, we immediately question God and we go, God, what were you thinking? How could you let this happen? What possible good could come out of this bad thing or this evil or this sin or this tragedy? God, what, what are you doing? Why would God allow this evil to take place at all? It's important for us to stop when we see this happen in Scripture and ask that question, Because usually in the scripture, we see the answer. And so here in particular, the first believer, his name was Stephen, has been killed for his faith. And the people of that time, and, and we too can look at that and go, God, why would you let this happen? But God answers the question here in this passage. It really gives us the same passion that comes out of, you know, Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. I love that that verse. Joseph says, you meant it for evil but God meant it for good. You meant it for evil when you killed Stephen, but God meant it for good. So what is it that's happening here? Because of persecution, because of hardship, the existing believers in the world have been made more courageous. Because of persecution and hardship, they're now getting on God's mission and they're now sharing the good news of the gospel with lots and lots of people who otherwise never would have heard. And twice in this short little story, it says that many, many people are being saved. They're being brought from death to life. 
And in this short little passage, it tells us that multiple new churches are springing up in multiple different cities around the known world. Why? Because God allowed, God even led difficulty, persecution, sin, and hardship. But we see that God is good. We see that God is in control, even in a difficult circumstance, and He's using it to further His mission to take the gospel to every city. Number two, as we continue to look through this passage, second application, our mission then is shaped by God's power and God's passion to save. We're going to see here both God's power and His passion. Look at verse 21. It says this, the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So the hand of the Lord is what saves people. A great number believed. A great number turned and trusted the Lord, turned away from their idolatry, turned away from their sin, turned away from their hopelessness, turned away from their addiction, whatever it may have been, and turned into the face of Jesus and said, I trust you. So there's lots and lots of lost and hopeless and even godless people who are giving their lives to Jesus and got saved because the hand of the Lord moved in their hearts. We see this theme in particular throughout the book of Acts as people come to Christ and as new churches are planted. Acts 16, 14, the Lord opened Lydia's heart to respond to Paul's message of the gospel. Acts 13, 48, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. God's hand is moving in the hearts of people. So you may say, okay, well then what is my role in this mission? If God is the hands, God is the power behind it, what do I do? And the scripture is not unclear. 2 Corinthians 5.20, we are Christ's ambassadors. We are Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. Romans 10.15, powerful verse, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. That's you and me. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news, the good news of God. So we preach we teach, we share, we live it out with our words. By the way, the word preach just means to talk to other people about it. It doesn't just mean what I'm doing here standing in front of a pulpit. It means to proclaim, to let the good news be heard. So we talk, we share, we live it out. But it is God's hand who makes it happen. I cannot change anyone's heart. I can't. I've tried. It doesn't work with my kids. It doesn't work with other adults. I can't even change my own heart. The Holy Spirit can. Amen? The Holy Spirit does what I could never do. He is in the business of changing hearts and turning hearts back to the Father. So we picture what does that look like when God's hands get involved? But just to imagine, what would it be like if the city of Palm Bay, every single person, came to know Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior? What would it look like? Can you imagine? What would it be like if all of the city of Havana, Cuba came to know Jesus, bowed the knee to King Jesus and said, this man who is God is my Lord and Savior? What a radical, eternally life-altering change that would be. That's God's mission, and that's the vision that we have to see and to be a part of. The hand of the Lord does all of it, but we get to be a part of it. There's not just the hand, though. It's not just God's power. God and His amazingness, He has the hands and He has the heart. 
And I don't want us to miss this too because it's also the heart, the passion of God. We see this maybe no better place than in a little story that's super famous and kids sing songs about it and we teach it in City Kids all the time. Luke chapter 19. If you have your Bible, maybe flip over there. I just want to read this just to get a picture of God's heart this morning. Luke chapter 19, verse 1. Jesus is on a missions trip and he's gone on a missions trip to a city called Jericho. Just so we're clear, Jericho is not in Jerusalem. Jericho is not in Israel. It is the enemy. It is the epitome of the enemy. It is enemy territory. It is Gentile territory. Jesus is on a missions trip, and this is what we see happen. He entered Jericho and was passing through, verse 1. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. Remember that guy? Yeah, that guy. There was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. No more famous short person in the world than Zacchaeus. Verse 4, so he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. You've got the song in your head now, right? And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, Hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. How is that their response? That's their response. They all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Yeah. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. Now listen. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. God's heart expressed through Jesus the Son of God, his heart is to seek and to save the lost. So God brings the hands and he brings the heart, and we come alongside of him in that mission to be a part of seeking and saving the lost. Because here's the reality. Every single person in this room who knows Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior, your story began with being lost. And your story grew when God sought you out. And chances are God worked through people and situations and the word of God and God sought you out and people sought you out. And you move from being lost to being found. You move from being hopeless to being filled with hope. You move from a place of despair to a place of joy. And if you've never experienced that good news before, I want to make sure that you understand that the gospel is for all people, including every single person sitting in this room, including every single person in this city, every single person in Cuba and around the world, that God has made a way for salvation, that he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to live the perfect life that we could never live, to die on the cross the death that we deserve, but he took it for us, to pay the penalty for our sins so that we can literally spend eternity in heaven with God, having been adopted into a new family, the family of God. Your sin can be forgiven. Your sin can be forgotten. And Romans 10, 13 tells us this, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What does that mean? 
Today is the day to call upon Jesus and say, Jesus, I recognize that on my own I am hopeless, that you are the only way, and I look to you to be my personal Lord, be the king of my life, and be my Savior. Number three, talking about our mission. Our mission is also to partner with what God is doing in other cities. It's not just my city, our city. And this is the power of the gospel. Look at verse 22 through 24 now. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So what's happening here? This is important. Another church heard what God was doing, and they joined the mission of God in that new city. So Jerusalem church that is now hearing the good news is actually the mother church. Jerusalem church is the sending church. The gospel going forward, the beginning of Acts, begins in Jerusalem. So at that moment in history, if you're a believer, you're in Jerusalem. But now it's going outward. And so this, their daughter church that has sprung up here among other places in this city called Antioch is already maturing. And it's actually maturing quickly beyond that of the mother church. In fact, what we're going to see in the pages of scripture as we continue through Acts is that as the gospel goes forward, the city of Antioch actually becomes like the mission center of the world. And so Antioch continues to grow and mature beyond even what the mother church that has sent them is doing. Now, let's just be real, real clear and real practical here. New City Church, we are ourselves a daughter church or a church plant. Covenant Church planted us. They are the mother church, and now we are a new church called to continue with the same mission. And by God's grace, it doesn't stop with us, right? We see that story throughout Scripture. Nobody's a dead end. No believer is a cul-de-sac, and no church is a dead end. We want to continue to grow, and so it is our vision, our desire that we might plant another church and send out another church planter here locally, somewhere, wherever God might raise it up in this county, within five years from us, that we would continue to be used by God. But we also want to be a church plant who partners with another church plant globally, and we want to do that from the beginning. You understand what I'm saying? We're a baby, right? We're a church plant. But from the beginning, we want to do the same thing with somebody else who's a baby also. And we're going to partner with one of those church plants that's down there in Cuba and continue to share in gospel mission together. Um, Randy Pope, who is the former senior pastor up in Atlanta at Perimeter Church, he's got a very simple phrase that applies to things like this. When you're looking at God's mission and just seeing how big it is, you know, how do I respond? He says, when you're first beginning, think big, start small, and go deep. Think big, start small, but go deep. And in this particular case, what that means is long-term relationship, that there's a depth of relationship and commitment with this other church, this other mission and movement of God. Now, how are we going to do that? Again, in the keep it real category, this is our 19th Sunday here in the cafeteria for New City Church. Like, we're brand new. We're a baby. We've cut the umbilical cord. We just started walking, and we're stumbling all over ourselves. Praise God. It's awesome. 
Praise God for every single literal kid who is in nursery and who is in toddler town. Toddler town is the coolest name ever. It's awesome. We are a toddler. That's okay. Is it going to be hard? Yes, absolutely. Does this sound a little bit crazy? Yeah. Let's go. Let's do it. Let's be a part of what God is doing. Is it going to be a stretch to send money? Yeah. Is it going to be a stretch to send us, our people? Yes. Let's do it. What we want to do is build a long-term relationship with a church plant in Cuba. Why? Because Acts 11 gives us, among many places in Scripture, the grid with which to follow. We're going to build a long-term relationship. That means we're not going to just show up once. We're not going to come to take some pictures, which is, is the danger here, right? We go, take a couple pictures, feel really good about ourselves. That's not what we're going to do. We're not going to just send money down there to sort of clear our conscience and know, hey, we did something, but we're good here. Um, we're not going to send a couple of obnoxious teenagers for the weekend and traumatize the nation of Cuba. It's happened before. That's not what we're going to do. But I want you to see two things that are happening here from the scripture. First, they sent their best on a missions trip to be encouraged. Okay? Think about that. They sent their best on a missions trip to be encouraged. Okay, so who did they send? They send this guy named Barnabas. Okay, if you don't know, Barnabas' name literally means the son of encouragement. So he is the most joyful, happy, awesome person in all of the New Testament. That's who they sent. This guy probably doesn't need a lot of encouragement. He is the encourager, but they sent him. And look at the result. It says he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and Barnabas was himself encouraged by what he saw when he arrived. When he saw God's mission in another place, he got challenged. He saw God working in a new place in a new way, and he got excited again about what God was doing. And so we've got to do the same. We're going to go on international missions trips because when we go, we learn. When we go, we get discipled as we see another church and their strengths and how they handle persecution and how they handle hardship. And we get a vision for what God is doing somewhere else. And we get to see, and here's the power, we get to see, we realize when we go, the blessings that we have, the resources that we have, the opportunities that we have, and maybe where we've walked past a person and not actually seen them, suddenly we begin to see people differently here in our home city because of what we saw over there. Here's what should happen. When you go on missions, I'm talking about going away, somewhere that's not here, somewhere that's very different, it should inevitably lead you to this question. What I'm doing here on this missions trip, why can't I do it back home? As I'm sharing the gospel with these people and I'm working through language barriers and cultural barriers and I'm seeing what's going on and my mind's blown by just experiencing a whole different culture, why can't I have that same fervency and passion as I'm sharing the gospel here in this place to do it with my neighbor, to do it with my friend? to do it with my family member, to share the gospel with a coworker, somebody who's always been right there, but now maybe for the first time I see them. So they sent their best on a missions trip to be encouraged. But here's the other thing. Those who came encouraged those who were already there on mission. Okay, so we're not going to go to just simply see what can I get out of it. No, 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 no. Those who came encouraged those who were already there on a mission. So Barnabas does what Barnabas does. He exhorts and he encourages the believers who were there in Antioch. It says he exhorted them all to remain faithful with purpose. 
I want to go and support what's going on with believers in Cuba to exhort them to remain faithful to God's purpose, to remind them what you're doing is not being done in vain. The scripture says, my word never returns void. I want to remind them and encourage them of that fact. And it says that a great many people were added to the Lord again. And so there's multiplication of God's mission happening as the partnership is taking place and people from the outside come in and serve. So what does that mean? Practically, it means we want to start supporting them financially now. And it means we want to start sending our people. My goal is for us to send no later than next summer for us to send our first of many teams, young folks, old folks, everything in between folks, that we are going to go and learn and be blessed, but also to go and serve them and bless them. As you think about these teams and you think about what does that look like to go, um, some of the things that we saw on display, some of the things that were asked for, some of the things that are already taking place, simple things that you're like, oh, I can, I can do that. I can be a part of that. Using sports as a way to do outreach and to have gospel conversations. Having drama teams that can share the gospel in their actions, even if we can't speak the words of the language, that we can still show the gospel. Doing street evangelism and learning how to speak that Spanglish and figure out how to share, and hopefully along the way, we learn and we grow in, in meeting them where they're at in their language. By God's grace, we already have several people in our church that do speak fluent Spanish and want to take advantage of those awesome resources. Things like Vacation Bible School, if we can do it here, we can do it over there. Um, mercy, mercy ministry, because there are so many there who are very much in need of the, the simple building blocks of food, medication, that there are practical ways that we can come and be the hands and feet of Jesus in this place. I want to show you one more picture here. This is Los Pinos Nuevos. This is their vision. It's 10 by 10 by 5 by 10. You can take a look at that picture. You're seeing all of the nation of Cuba. And what you're seeing there is a vision of 10 house church planting movements. That's the first 10, that there would be 10 house church planting movements in 10 key cities over the space of the next five years with 10 farms. Let me walk you through that again. So 10 house church planting movements in 10 key cities over the next five years with 10 farms. Now, here's how that kind of breaks down. Many of their churches, most of their churches are in somebody's house. When they move into a new city, one of the things that is their goal is to be able to have enough finances to purchase one sort of main house that would be the main hub, the main church, but also where they could immediately establish a seminary where they can start to teach and train people to be pastors and to lead other house churches. There are already, if you look at the graphic there, if you go back to that, six of the 10 cities are already up and running. Four of them have yet to begin. So they've identified those four in green as these are the next cities that we believe strategically God would have us go. But how exciting is it that six of those 10 are already in action and they're already raising up church planters to go to some of these other cities where the ministry and the work has not yet begun. And then I'll speak to the 10 farms thing for just a second. What they are trying to do ultimately, and this so far has proven to be the hardest part of their vision um, in many ways, is they're attempting to find a way forward to become financially self-sustaining, which is literally, as they, they, they shared, an impossibility um, under what they would describe as a fatal economy. 
And so there is not a way for them outside of the church, big C, coming alongside of them and helping them do what they're doing, that they can continue to press forward with the gospel in these different cities. Their request is literally $225 a month. You think about that. What is $225 for us? $225 a month for them is the salary for a church planting pastor, the expenses for a house church, the development of a farm, and all the discipleship materials that they need to be able to press forward with the gospel. The dollar goes really far. Even if it didn't, it doesn't matter. This is God's mission, and we want to be a part of it. But I'm asking us as New City, as a church, to partner together to be a part of seeing the gospel go forward in another city. Fourth and finally, our mission is to glorify God by being and making disciples of Jesus. You've heard me say that once or twice. That is the stated mission of New City Church. Listen to how it plays out here in Acts chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. So Barnabas went to Tarshish to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. To glorify God by being and making disciples of Jesus is our mission. What that looks like in our lives and here in this story is one guy brings another guy along who brings another guy along who brings another guy along. One girl brings along another girl who brings along another girl who brings along another girl. Discipleship, there's no, again, there's no dead ends. So what is happening here is one man is bringing another. Barnabas is bringing Saul into what's happening here in this city. What does this look like, big picture in Scripture? Let's go to the book of Matthew real quick and hear a passage that we've heard before and maybe look at it with fresh eyes. Matthew 28 says this, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Barnabas disciples another guy to be a church planter. Barnabas brings Saul to Antioch Church. If you want to see the grace of God, the hand of God, and the heart of God in action, this is it. Who was the guy who started all this murdering and attacking of Christians in the first place? Saul. The man who killed the very first Christian, Saul. The man who is leading the persecution, the hardship, and the attack, Saul. Saul himself has given his life to Jesus, and now he's being brought to Antioch Church And he himself is going to lead the next four missionary journeys that go all over the known world. And in each major city that he stops at, he's going to share the gospel. People come to Jesus and new churches are planted. This guy was the least likely person of all time. And that's who God used. That's the hand of the Lord. That's the heart of the Lord. I saw that in in one practical way in Cuba. I saw... It was really challenging to me is the reality of they see everybody, everybody in the church is on mission in such a way that says, listen, if you have come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, then there is a place for you to lead out in being a part of God's mission. And so everybody is involved. And there's so many just 
regular guys, average Joes that are being raised up to be pastors of these brand new churches that maybe they became a believer just a couple years ago, but God is raising them up to be involved. There's nobody on the sideline in the Cuban church. It was a powerful thing to see. I just want to tell you a little bit about how, it, how it's affected me, specifically how international missions and going on trips and being a part of it has grown me in my discipleship and just as my, myself as a follower, as a personal follower of Jesus Christ. I took my first international missions trip when I was 13 years old, and I went to Canada. And when I went there, God really began to already open my eyes to see how important cross-cultural missions was. What I learned really quick is that anybody can share the gospel. Even 13-year-old me can share the good news of the gospel. I didn't have to have a seminary degree to be able to do that. But what I also saw was that this little Indian town in northern Canada needed the gospel just as much as my hometown did, that they were in the exact same position, that we had a whole, whole lot in common, our need for Jesus. It was also the first time that as a 13-year-old, I literally got to lead someone to Christ, to pray with him, a powerful moment. When I was 20, I took my first trip to Bolivia, and it was really my first time actually leading others on a trip. And you say, are you crazy? A 20-year-old led a trip in an international context? Yes. Was it crazy? Yes. But God was good. And there were people looking over my shoulder to make sure I didn't mess it up. But what I saw was it was not about my ability. It was about God's ability. It was about my hand. It was about God's hand. And God matured me and grew me as he used me to teach other people, this is how you can do a vacation Bible school. This is how you can do sports outreach. This is how you can share the gospel. We're in Bolivia. Most of us didn't speak Spanish, but God used us nonetheless. When we were on that trip, there was a man that we had not met before who joined our college team. He was in his early 50s. Um, we weren't 100% sure why he'd come on the trip, but halfway through the trip, he shared with us that he had just discovered that he himself had terminal cancer. And what he wanted to do with his remaining time on earth was be on mission that that reality check of the time that he had being limited led him to press in further in the mission of God. And it humbled us. It shocked us to hear that's why he was there. But God used him in that moment. When I was 21, I went to Mexico, and this was my first sort of middle-term amount of time. I was there for two months. Um, I learned about the power of prayer. I went up on the rooftop of the house that I was living in and would just pray for an hour at a time each day, and that's something I had never done to that point in my life. But with an absence of typical American comforts, frankly, there wasn't a whole lot else to do. But you know what I learned? When all my comforts were gone and I got really, really uncomfortable, I saw more clearly than ever that the only thing I really need is Jesus. And when I saw what people in that context were living like, I, saw, I began to see poverty and understand poverty both physically and spiritually more than ever before. It showed me their need, my need, our need for the gospel. It also showed me that even though I couldn't speak the language perfectly, I was learning it, but that it didn't matter. That the gospel in so many ways is communicated without words. Then finally, as an as adult, quote unquote, in my 20s and 30s, um, I've taken a number of trips to Ecuador and to Trinidad, and um, what I saw in many of those trips is the grip of satanic, false religion, the lies that Satan uses to hold people, to bind them in chains that they cannot and do not see 
who Jesus is. And then just the joy of being able to be a part of a team of people who are able to go and speak and live out the truth and to see people who are lost and who are hopeless experience life, eternal life in Jesus. What does that mean for us? Just say very clearly, for New City Church, the vision of New City Church, our vision is not simply to hold a worship service in this cafeteria. You understand what I'm saying there? It's important. This has been a colossal effort. It's awesome. I love every moment of this. But just so we're clear, the vision of New City Church is not just to have a worship service in this cafeteria, right? It's bigger than that. Now, if we think about it, I'm not, I'm not dismissing worship. Worship is a cornerstone. Worship is the fuel of mission, okay? Worship is the goal of mission. We want to see people become worshipers of God. But our vision is to see our city made new by the gospel. In other words, our vision, and it's a big vision, it requires God's hand and God's heart, but our vision is to see every single person in this city come to know Jesus. I can't do that, but he can. And our vision is to be a part of doing it in multiple cities. So now it's, it's our city, but God, would you use us to partner with another city somewhere in Cuba to see the gospel mission go forward? God's big vision, God's big power, little us to be used in that big picture. Let me show you in closing what it looks like. This is Revelation chapter 7. This is what it looks like. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, says John prophetically in Revelation, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne of Jesus and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What a powerful vision of what will be someday because of God's hand and God's heart. Amen? Let's take a moment. Let's pray together to this good, powerful God.